Hello and welcome back to Dinner, Drinks, and Death. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Erin. And tonight we've got a spooky episode for you guys. Ooh, it's a Halloween episode. Woo, woo. Spooky. I'm even wearing my spooky shirt. Got it off Etsy. So cute. Spooky, spooky, spooky. Yes. Okay. I'm going to just jump right on in. I've got a couple cases. We've got three good cases for you guys tonight, and I'm just going to dive in. Let's go. Uh, First, I'm going to be covering Johnny Francis Garrett. Interesting name. It is, isn't it? Anyways, on October 31st, uh, sorry, on October 30th, 1981, Sister Tadea Benz, a Catholic nun, was raped and murdered in the St. Francis Convent in Amarillo, Texas. Benz's body was discovered at 7 a.m. the following morning by another nun. She was found naked with blood on her face and she was lying on her bedroom floor, which was on the second floor of the building. Uh, and about an hour after her body was found, the some of the sisters realized that the convent's community room had been broken into. They found a broken window. And they didn't automatically call police. They didn't. They thought that as she was getting ready to go to bed, she possibly had fallen down or something hit her head and had simply passed away. I love the innocence of that, how the nuns automatically don't go to assume that there's a crime taking place. They're just like, she fell down. You know, it's innocent. It's very sweet. and Very nunly. I think, if I remember correctly, they had either left her body there or they had moved it. I think they left her body there. They just covered her with a sheet. Um, But it wasn't until literally an hour later that they saw the broken window and they're like, oh, we were broken in somebody broke in maybe maybe it was something bad and so after finding the window they call police who show up collect evidence including a knife which was found underneath benz's bed they collected her bed sheets and fingerprints that were lifted from the knife blade which was under the bed fingerprints lifted from the bed's headboard and the cut window screen in addition to this, a second knife was also found outside in the driveway. Benz's autopsy revealed multiple stab wounds, contusions to her head, and abrasive injuries to her neck. The pathologist, Dr. Erdman, ruled her case of death, her cause of death had been manual strangulation. He also noted signs of external bleeding and internal trauma, which indicated forcible rape. Oh, no. And as this was all going on with the investigation and things, the rest of the sisters were trying to be really quiet about it. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't really want this information getting out there. They wanted to kind of keep her information private. They didn't want to like go around sharing. And so police were like, like, we understand this is an information we're going to share. We're just trying to find out who did this to her. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. However, luckily, there was a witness to this gruesome crime. On the night of the murder, a witness claimed to have seen a man named Johnny Francis Garrett running from the direction of the convent. The knife police found in the driveway also happened to match the design, make, 
and degree of use as a knife which was recovered from Garrett's home. So like they went to his home, they looked at like the knives he had and they're like, oh hey look, this one kind of looks like this one that we found. They kind of yeah. look like it's missing. Yeah. So like they had a baseline of comparison to the knife that was found outside the, the convent. Additionally, the fingerprints from the knife blade and headboard matched Garrett's fingerprints. Hmm. And at just 17 years old, Garrett was arrested on November 9th, 1981. He gave a confession, which many actually some, somehow believe was coerced because he refused to sign it. He's never signed it, this confession that he gave. And just to give a little backstory on him now, he was born December 24th, 1963, and growing up had a very incredibly rough childhood. He'd been introduced to drugs and alcohol by members of his family at only 10 years old. Oh, wow. And subsequently indulged in serious substance abuse involving brain-damaging substances such as paint thinner and amphetamines. He was also raped by his stepfather as, as a young boy and was then hired off to another man for sex. So starting from the age of 14, Garrett was forced to perform sexual acts and to participate in pornographic homosexual films. He was also regularly beaten. And on one occasion, they like somebody picked him up and sat him on top of a burner of the stove, which was on which resulted in severe scarring. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> so he's got like a really messed up childhood. Yeah. He's got some serious mental damage. Yes. In fact, Garrett's history of abuse and mental health problems were actually never made public to the jury during his trial at all. And according to several mental health experts who worked with Garrett between the years 1982 and 1986, they determined he was extremely mentally impaired, chronically psychotic, and brain damaged as the result of several severe head injuries that he sustained as a child. They also said that he suffered from paranoid delusions, including a belief that lethal injection could not kill him. Okay, so that could be true. It could also be an a cop-out. Yeah, a cop-out, an attempt to get him off easily, but it you know, to there, get him off the death there penalty. There could be some truth to to that. Yeah, I feel like there could be some truth to it. And maybe he does have some mental impairments. Mm -hmm. Maybe he does have, you know, a history of sexual abuse and substance abuse. But he knew what he was doing. Yeah, I feel like he absolutely knew what he was doing at the time. Because how can you say you didn't do it when they found your fingerprints on her headboard and on the knife which was found under her bed yeah like how can you say that wasn't you you took a knife out of your home went to the convent you were seen leaving it's a positive id yeah back to the murder garrett was tried and convicted for the brutal rape and murder of sister today Benz. During the trial, Garrett's defense tried to argue that he was severely mentally handicapped and that he couldn't possibly understand the crime that he was being tried for. The prosecution, on the other hand, argued that while Garrett was certainly not, quote unquote, normal, he was aware of his crime and understood the punishment. 
Garrett was then sentenced to death by lethal injection and was executed on February 11th, 1992. Garrett maintained his innocence until the very end. So there's, like, two kinds of killers. Like, the kinds who who love to talk about their murders, want the notoriety. Yeah. And then others that are just like, I didn't do it. Wasn't me. I don't want to die. <laughs> yeah, like how Ted Bundy was at the end. Yeah. I don't want to die. I'll tell you everything. I just don't want to die. And they're like, mm-hmm, too late, buddy. So with, with that said, my next killer is also one who never admitted to his crime. Which I feel like is kind of a common thing. They're, well, maybe not common. Maybe, I feel like it's 50-50. They either, like you said, can't stop talking about it mm-hmm. at Kemper, or they never want to tell you a single thing about it. Right. <clears throat> I didn't do it. I'm completely normal and innocent. I'm a great guy. Yeah. Or, or they were like, oh, I'm, I'm insane. <laughs> I can't possibly understand what I'm being punished for. Right. I don't know what I don't know what I was doing. I don't know where I am right now. <laughs> so let's get into my. I'm so excited. My little story here. I have um, the Candyman. What a fun nickname, right? It just sounds so sweet and innocent. The Candyman. Isn't there like a song? Isn't there a song? Yes, but oh, we're not going to sing it. Okay. <laughs> Um, and it has absolutely nothing to do with this story. Oh, really? Fun. I thought they might have been, like, linked somehow. No. Interesting. Um, so, Ronald Clark O'Brien may have seemed like the typical family man who worked as an optician. That's, like, an eye doctor guy, right? He's not an eye doctor. He, it's, like, the the people who you go to to get your glasses fixed they help you like adjust them so kind of they no it's not an eye it's not a doctor it's somebody that and i like helps you um fit your contacts and your glasses like they work in an eye doctor's office okay but they're the people that you know you try on your glasses okay help you find something that looks good so he wasn't like a, a doctor or anything. Okay, okay, okay. Um, he worshipped in his local Baptist church where he served as a deacon and sang in the choir. He also volunteered for his church's bus program and was well known as a stand-up citizen. And he p- appeared to be a loving husband to his wife, Damien, and their two children, Timothy, who was age eight, and Elizabeth, age five. My name's Elizabeth. Okay, well, they lived in a middle-class suburb of Houston called Deer Park, Texas. And little did their community know, O'Brien's respectable behavior was just a facade. Do you know who he reminds me of right now? No. BTK. Dennis Rader. He was like a respectable, like, church guy. His family loved him. Everybody loved him. Community loved him. But he was a murderer. I think this is a common thing. Like, there are so many murderers, killers out there who you think would never do anybody harm. They're, you know, yeah, crying. Like, they're the women thought about Ted Bundy. They're like, oh, he just doesn't seem like the, the type of guy who could 
go around doing all these brutal things to women. It's like, yeah. surprise. They have a terrible job and then bam. Yeah. But in reality, O'Brien had held 21 different jobs in the past 10 years. He had been fired from each of them on account of negligence and fraudulent behavior. Oof. So maybe he wasn't so perfect after all. No, I don't I don't think so. In 1974, at his current place of employment, Texas State Optical, he was again at risk for being fired due to his employer's belief that he was stealing money from the company. How do you even do that, by the way? That I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> Not that I'm going to. <laughs> but this guy is apparently very good at fraud and stuff like that. So he yeah. knew how. That's the important thing. His earnings were meager and he could barely cover rent and food for his family. Later, it would be discovered that O'Brien was severely in debt. He owed over $100,000, which would be about 520000 in today's money. Oh, my goodness. That's enough college education for, like, several people if you went to where I went to college. Yeah. <laughs> he was defaulted on several bank loans, and he was in danger of having his car repossessed. Like, he was, you know, he had a problem. Yeah, I'll say. His plan was as simple as it was twisted. He took out multiple insurance policies on both of his children. Red flag. Yeah. And proceeded to implement his disgusting plan, which, of course, happened on Halloween night. On Halloween night, 1974, like any good dad, O'Brien took his two children trick-or-treating in his neighborhood. Despite the rainy weather, it was a little drizzly. I feel like that just adds to the whole mood and aesthetic of Halloween. Right? Like, he's just out. It's kind of a rainy night. Yeah. Not too bad. You could still go out and trick-or-treat. He's taking his two kids. They were accompanied by a neighbor and his two children. It's like your typical Halloween. Family Halloween. So... They went to a few houses, and then they stopped at one house where there, there was no one at the door. No one answered. The kids grew impatient and hurried along to another house. But you do. You're, you're here for the candy. If they're not going to give you candy, you, you move right along. Exactly. They're like, forget this. We're going somewhere else. Yeah. But O'Brien, oddly enough, lagged behind. So he just let his kids wander off? Well, he... They're with the neighbor. I know that, like, he yeah. just let them go with the other parents. Yeah, yeah. He, but who just stays behind? They're like, I'll cut, I'll catch up with you in a minute. I'm gonna tie my shoe or something. Like, it's weird. Yeah. So when he finally caught back up to them, he was holding five giant pixie sticks. Suspicious. Totally suspicious. He claimed this is even more suspicious. Suspicious, sir. <laughs> he claimed that he tried knocking again at the house where no one answered and was given the candy. They're not just going to give it to an adult. Isn't that the weirdest thing? He's like, oh, we just knocked and you didn't answer. But I'm, I thought I would knock again and get some candy by myself as a grown up. 
you have well, my kids who are not with me right now. Like, like for for trick or treaters at my door, we actually this is gonna be like our first time handing out hopefully handing out candy on Halloween because with like the pandemic and everything, nobody really went trick or treating last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're gonna we bought some just in case there are trick or treaters this year. Uh, but yeah, if if an adult were to knock on my door and there were no children present, <laughs> I would just be like, no. Bye. You wouldn't hand him five giant pixie sticks? I might throw like one little bag of Skittles that I have at them and be like, um, here you go. But I would immediately like, I, w- I would like peek my door open and be like, um, please go away. You don't even have <laughs> Close the door, lock it. <laughs> That's weird. Okay, it, this guy is obviously not very bright because you're going to find out more in a little bit. But, okay. um, so he claimed that he tried knocking on the door and he was given the candy. He gave one to each of the four children trick-or-treating with him. And he gave the fifth one to another boy that he recognized from church. Just randomly hand- hands out that candy. Okay. Um, later, you'll find out that he did that so as not to be suspicious. But, okay. So when he arrived home... Timothy asked his father if he could eat some of the candy he acquired before bed. O'Brien later claimed that Timothy had chosen the pixie stick, but his wife admitted, I think during the trial, that he was forced to pick that one. He's like, you can have the pixie stick or you get nothing. Exactly. Like, eat it, kid. Like, no, I want I want my three musketeers over here. Like, eat a pixie stick. You want this? Like, I want <laughs> you this. Need to eat this one. This is the one I got from you for you with a stranger's house all on my own. Yeah. It's really weird, but you eat it. <laughs> yeah. So upon eating the candy, Timothy com- complained that it tasted bitter. What? But his father gave him some Kool-Aid to wash it down with. He made him eat it anyway. Soon after, Timothy stated that his stomach hurt and he started to vomit and convulse in the bathroom. Uh-oh. He died on the way to the hospital less than an hour after consuming the so-called candy. Oh my goodness. What was in it? Well, O'Brien was not immediately suspected of anything until the autopsy report showed that the pixie stick he had consumed was laced with potassium cyanide. See, see, that's... That's why you don't be the one to give them the pixie sticks. Hmm. Don't make it obvious that you did it. Let him eat some other candy because I like, oh, maybe it came from something else. You can eat this Kit Kat. You can eat this Skittles. You can eat the pixie stick last. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> Only eat the one I gave you that was laced. It's not suspicious. Exactly. Anyway, so the pixie sticks had enough cyanide to kill two adults. He gave it to his son. His eight-year-old kid, yeah. For the insurance. What the hell? Insurance is never the way to go. No. You always get caught. He's not a bright guy, okay? Like, this guy is a loser. Totally a loser. Yeah. The police were able to collect four out of the five pixie sticks, 
Luckily, none of the other children ate them. Yeah, like the parents, the parents of the fifth kid child ran into his room after they couldn't find the pixie stick among the other candy, and they found their son sleeping with it in his hand. Was it opened, or he he was just like holding on to it? Like I can't wait to eat this for breakfast. He wasn't able to open it because it had a staple closing it together. Which okay, if your candy is closed by a staple. You probably no, didn't eat it. it. It was obviously <laughs> tampered with. Yeah. But he couldn't open it. So I guess he just fell asleep with it in his hand. And wait, wait. so he, the, the giant pixie sticks, those are like the plastic ones, right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know why I was thinking like the, the tiny paper ones for a second. No, it's like the, the big, like yeah. two feet. I guess a child wouldn't have easy access to like scissors then well I guess he was like pretty sleepy <laughs> he just fell asleep with it in his hand he was like but I'll just cry myself to sleep <laughs> he was so sad he's like I'll just eat it for breakfast but luckily that's and, okay think of this like he had a stapler in his pocket <laughs> he was walking around trick-or-treating with a stapler or he laced them and stapled them prior to leaving okay that makes more sense but where was he hiding it in his jacket yeah i guess so it wasn't just like sticking out like weird yeah Here, that's why you don't choose pixie sticks choose a different candy that everyone's going to be giving out nobody not everyone's giving out giant pixie sticks yeah but pixie sticks are the only candy that i can think of that are it's like a powder you got like fun dip those little things yeah you could do sour skittles those have like they're like mixed with stuff it could be like the the citric acid which is what makes it sour that's kind of a powder did they have that in the 70s i don't know i don't know i wasn't alive in the 70s me either (laughs) (laughs) okay moving on continue on please (laughs) So O'Brien did not want to admit to any wrongdoing. He's one of those. And he never would. He went along with the police walking around the neighborhood in an effort to reenact the events of Halloween night. So he acted like he could not remember which house he received the candy from. Which, again, this guy is not very bright. He walked down... I feel like you would know where you got the pixie sticks from. They're giant pixie sticks and it killed your son. You're gonna remember what house you got it from. Yeah, but this guy is an idiot and he's lying. He... Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so he's walking. They only walked down two streets. It was a rainy night. They walked down two streets. There was only one house that the children didn't go to that he did. But he's like, I don't remember where I got it from. Like Finally, <laughs> O'Brien claimed that he received the candy from the house that no one answered. He could not give a description of the man who gave him the candy. Instead, he stated that he only saw the arm of this random man. Uh-huh. And the arm was hairy. So apparently this so guy stereotypical the though. Door, he sticks his arm out with five 
pixie sticks. Can't see his face. He just randomly gives five giant pixie sticks only with his arm to this man. Not dressed in a costume with no kids. Apparently he's (laughs) trick-or-treating. Like, what? No, nobody does that. (laughs) There isn't a kid at my door and some adults knocking at my door this tomorrow night for Halloween. I'm going to be like, I'm not home. I ain't got no candy. Leave. This guy is not smart. No, he's not. (laughs) So the owner of the house was a man named Courtney Melvin. And he was an air traffic controller at the Hobby Airport. He had over 200 people who confirmed that he had been at work at that time. Oh, my goodness. He didn't get home from work that night until after 11. So he's off the hook. It It was not him. Obviously. And, like, what a way to pick a house. Like, it was that guy. Yeah. Who works with, like, tons of people who can confirm that he was at work. Over 200 people, somebody that works at an airport where multiple, multiple people see him. Yeah. There's cameras. There's no way. Yeah. There's the pilots that are talking to him at <laughs> the control. There's people in the control building that he works with. Come on. Yeah. So O'Brien's case was taken to trial with the evidence of his debts and the insurance policies that he had taken out on his kids. Um. Which he took multiple insurance policies out over like a period of a few months before this happened. And it it was a it was a lot of money. How much? Well, for the time it was like maybe sixty thousand, which would have been, you know, a lot more into Yeah. My goodness. Um, so Along with that evidence, a chemist who was an acquaintance of O'Brien's, I think he was somebody that had visited his office, like a client. Um, And then another guy who was a chemical supply salesman, they both testified during the trial that that O'Brien had inquired about cyanide and asked questions like, how much could kill a person? Where could he buy some? And of course, this is pre Google days. So, yeah. like, he has to get this. I was literally just by, thinking, like, just Google it. Yeah, he has to get this information by asking people, which, of course, if you Google it, you're going to have that history. Yeah, true. But, Unless you delete it. But, he, but you have to, he, I guess he didn't know where a library was. Exactly. He, <laughs> he just has to ask weird Don't questions. Ask people. Don't ask people that. Do your own research. Yeah. but Don't kill people with cyanide. It was never discovered when or where he bought the poison. Mm -hmm. Just that he had inquired. He had asked a lot of strange questions about it. Yeah. Oh, no. What happened? I dropped you. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. So, recovered you? You are well? I'm alive. Thanks for saving me. (laughs) O'Brien's sister-in-law and brother-in-law also testified against him during the trial that that he had mentioned the insurance policies at Timothy's funeral and talked about taking a vacation and buying other large items. Um, 
so he's already like planning to spend the money instead of I don't know paying off his debt. Yeah, and he's bragging about it at his kid's funeral. Like, yeah, my kid just died, but I got a shitload of money, man. Man, I'm gonna go on vacation. I'm gonna buy some shit. Not suspicious, and also, Sir, your again, son is dead. Not smart. the trial was well publicized and he was of course dubbed the candy man or the man who killed halloween i feel like candy man as a name for him would make more sense had he poisoned more than his own child right well he did try to poison four other kids it was the key word here though he didn't succeed so he's not really the candy man but attempted murder is you know gonna get him in trouble just as much as murder yeah i guess it's all a matter of intent the candy father the candy inspired murder candy murderer candy killer the candy killer the candy killer who killed his own son and that's it yeah, so the case was, um, it spread fear in the community, of course, and parents were in high alert, worried that their own children would be poisoned by strangers giving out candy. Which is, also, fear has never gone away. There's even people still saying that nowadays, yeah. but rather than it being spiked or laced with poisons, they're like, oh, watch out, your kids might be given marijuana edibles instead of candy. Yeah, and even before this case, like, it was a kind of an urban legend. You know, people worried about taking things from strangers. Yeah. But this just solidified their fears. Yeah. The jury took only 46 minutes to declare O'Brien guilty of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. Oh, wow. After 71 minutes of deliberating, the jury sentenced O'Brien to death by electrocution. Oof. Soon after, and of course he's, you know, from Texas, so he's going to get the death penalty. Oh, yeah. It's Texas. That's what they do. Soon after, his wife filed for divorce, and she had maintained the entire time that she knew nothing of it. She knew nothing of the insurance policies that he took out. She didn't know about the plan to kill their children. And she eventually remarried and her new husband adopted her daughter, Elizabeth. Which I think that kind of makes sense. Because back in those days, maybe less often, but still I think pretty prominent was, you know, the man of the household. He takes care of the money, the bills, the insurance. So I feel like it kind of makes sense that she might not know. Yeah, and if he had like 21 jobs and all of them for like fraud and stuff like if she didn't know about that then of course if she didn't know about the debt I mean that would be enough to to have a divorce or some serious fights but she still had kids with him Mm -hmm. and so yeah I I don't know maybe so you do you, you don't know if you buy that she had no idea well, I'm saying that if she really did have no idea about the debts and the fraudulent behavior, then she probably didn't know about the insurance policies. 
Yeah. But but on the other hand, if she did know about that stuff, yeah, I don't know if she was in on it or, or not, but yeah. O'Brien lived on death row until after several rescheduled execution dates. One was actually on Halloween, but they changed it to Oh, why? Um, there were like three or four scheduled dates and then there were um, like they wanted a new trial or they wanted um, you know for various reasons uh-huh. they rescheduled the dates but it's a shame that one of them wasn't that the one that he got sentenced to death wasn't on um, the Halloween I think it was the time before the, the time before what does that mean well I mean the it, like his last Oh, death was not on Halloween. Well, yeah, I figured that. (laughs) But it would have been, you know, a coincidence. Poetic justice, maybe? Yeah. There you go. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) It's okay. That's why I'm here. Very badly. Yeah. Pretty bad. (laughs) That's what I'm, that's it. It's okay. It's okay. I got you. I got you. Anyway. He was despised by the other inmates who rejoiced at his death. Oh, wow. So, you know, even even inmates who are also guilty for various crimes hate murder, probably. They hate child killers. Yeah. Which, like, I don't know if this is rumor or not, but that's like a common I'm hesitant to say like popular thing it's like a popular rumor I guess within prisons that inmates who are child killers get treated like the worst of the worst Mm -hmm. pedophiles and child killers they get I've you know there's there's you hear stories they get branded they get like tattooed on them like saying like oh this is what they did like they're a pedophile Mm -hmm. like they're child killer they get beaten I mean like yeah by yeah. people who've committed like very atrocious crimes themselves yeah but there's like a moral like, he's the worst no. <laughs> he killed a kid I may have like bombed a store but he killed a kid there's no excuse for that <laughs> there's an excuse for what I did but not for killing a kid no. <laughs> and Besides that, a crowd of over 300 people gathered outside the prison on the day of his death and cheered. And apparently they were cheering trick or treat. (laughs) Except it's a trick for you. And apparently some, I guess there were um, like demonstrators like that didn't want, um, that didn't believe in the death penalty. And they were like throwing candy at them. At the crowd of 300 people? No. The 300 people were throwing Oh, they were throwing candy at the, candy demonstrators. At the, the demonstrators. I got They're it. like, here, take this candy. <laughs> Trick or treat. So it's kind of like with Bundy. His When he got executed, people were like, burn, Bundy, burn. Yeah, that's just weird. Like, why are you making a party out of something? Yeah, they're literally that? tailgating. That's just a step too far. Yeah. But I will continue on with my next case. Okay, Elizabeth, back to you. Back to me. Thanks. We're reporters now. (laughs) Okay, get over the giggles. Okay, 
Tell me about about this next case. What? Tell me about this next case. I will. This one's kind of sad, actually. Uh, My sad ones. Huh? You always have sad stories. I'm well. Guess what? Murder's sad. (laughs) Murder's a sad thing. No, that's what we're doing here. Telling sad stories. Yeah. What? Okay, go on. Okay. Okay. My next case is about a young girl named Martha Moxley. Martha Moxley was just your average 15-year-old girl from Greenwich. I think is how you pronounce it. Greenwich? Greenwich, right? I'm going to go with Greenwich. (laughs) Greenwich, Connecticut. Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. Please do. Uh, Who was murdered in 1975. Martha was last seen alive spending time with friends at the Skakel residence, which was across the street from her home in Bellhaven. Her untimely death occurred the evening of October 30th, 1975. Martha had left her home with a group of friends to participate in mischief night, during which neighborhood youths would ring bells, pull pranks, like throwing rolls of toilet paper over houses and whatnot that sounds fun just like your typical teenage yeah like your your stereotypical halloween pranks that all the like disney shows do and whatnot so that's kind of like what mitch shift night entailed and she was going out with friends doing that uh, according to time yeah she's having a good old time she's 15 she's a child living her life yes (laughs) according to her friends Martha started flirting with and eventually kissed Thomas Skakel, who was Michael's older brother, which is an important thing to note. Her friends said that she was last seen, quote, falling together behind the fence, end quote, with Thomas Skakel near the pool in the Skakel residence, like in in their backyard at approximately 9.30 p.m. Falling together? Is that a thing? I think it was back in the same falling together behind the fence. I mean, I've heard of necking. <laughs> Maybe this is like the mid 70s version of that. I don't know. Or a little bit further. I don't know. Exactly. She's a teenager. She's having fun. Scandalous. Scandalous. Exactly. <laughs> so she was last seen alive at 9.30 p.m. approximately. The next morning... Martha's body was found beneath a tree in her family's backyard. Her pants and underwear had been pulled down, but she had not been sexually assaulted. Okay, weird. Broken pieces of a six iron golf club were also found near her body. An autopsy determined that Martha had been both bludgeoned and stabbed with the golf club. Ooh, like can you imagine, ooh, stabbed with a golf club? Well, yeah, well, it got, like, broken into pieces, so she's being, like, bludgeoned, beaten with it, and it's break so, so hard and so much so that it is breaking the golf club, and then with those broken pieces now, she's being stabbed. Yuck. Yes. The club was later traced back to the Skakel, Skakel, (laughs) Skakel residence. But which one was it? Was it Thomas or was it Michael? I mean, it could have been their dad's, their father's golf clubs or something. It was just a golf club that belonged at their house. It was somebody's golf clubs. It was theirs. Uh, 
because they found that somebody was missing a six iron. They're like, oh, hey, is it this six iron? Oh, yeah, that one. It's gone. As Thomas was the last person to have been seen with Martha on the night of her murder, he became the prime suspect. Additionally, Keith Littleton, who was a living tutor for the Skakel boys, became a prime suspect as well. However, no one was ever charged. I know. Over the years, both Skakel boys have significantly changed their alibis for the night in question. Michael claimed that he had been window peeping and masturbating in a tree beside the Moxley property from 11.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. Oh, give me a break. A whole hour. (laughs) (laughs) What? That's insane. That story is so much better than I killed her. Like, (laughs) what? Two former students from... Ellen or Elin school, which is a treatment center for troubled youths, claimed that they heard Michael Skakel confess to killing Martha with a golf club. One of those former students named Gregory Coleman testified that Michael was given special privileges and had bragged, quote, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy, end quote. When William Kennedy Smith was tried and acquitted for rape in 1991, a rumor started that he had been present at the Skakel residence on the night of Martha's murder with the clear insinuation that he was potentially involved in her death. Although this rumor proved to be unfounded, it still resulted in a new open investigation of Martha's cold case because by then it had gone cold. Police had no leads. Mm -hmm. Rushton Skakel, who I'm assuming is the father, hired the Sutton Associates, which is or was a private detective agency, to open their own investigation of the killing. The Sutton report, which from that uh, was then leaked and reported that both Thomas and Michael had drastically altered their stories regarding their whereabouts on the night of Martha's murder. In 1998, a rarely invoked one-man grand jury was convened to review the evidence of the case. One man? Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of It's like one person reviews all of the evidence. It's all laid out to them, and one person decides, like, they're guilty, they're not guilty. I would never want that job. That is way too much That's a Yeah, that's got to be an insane amount of pressure, because you're single-handedly deciding this one Mm -hmm. person's fate, potentially saying either they did it and they're going to jail for the rest of their life or they didn't do it and they get to be a free person. Yeah. But that happens so incredibly rarely. And after an 18-month investigation, it was decided that there was enough evidence to charge Michael Skakel with murder. On January 9th, 2000, an arrest warrant was issued for an unnamed juvenile in regards to Martha's murder. Skagel surrendered to the authorities and was released shortly after on a $500,000 bail. Since Michael had been just 15 at the time of the murder, he was arraigned for murder in a juvenile court. However, on January 31st, 2001, a judge ruled that he would be tried as an adult. His trial began began 
early in 2002, and he claimed that his alibi was that at the time of the murder, he had been at his cousin's house. Like, Which is a, a different story to the one he gave when he was a kid. Yeah, and, and like I said before, they can they changed their story every single time. Mm. Every single time. They, they changed it all the time. During the trial, the jury heard part of a taped book proposal, which included Skakel talking about masturbating in a tree on the night of the murder. Possibly the same tree that Martha was later found under the next morning. Ew. Ew, ew. On June 7th, 2002, Skakel was found guilty of murdering Martha Moxley and was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. In January 2003, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly titled, quote, A Miscarriage of Justice, end quote. In it, he insisted that Skakel was jailed for a crime he did not commit. He also argued that the live-in tutor, Keith Littleton, was actually the man responsible for Martha's murder. Later, in 2016, Kennedy wrote a book defending Skakel titled, Framed. Skakel maintained his innocence and continues to fight his conviction throughout his time in prison. He remains in prison in Westchester, New York. He is still alive. Yes. Interesting. Yes. It's interesting. Both of the cases I chose, the the men convicted are like, wasn't me? And mine too. Yeah. Except yours, it was so obvious. Yeah, because he wasn't very bright. <laughs> no. And I guess it was it was obvious in the case of Garrett, too. Like, come on, man. What do you mean it wasn't you? We literally found your fingerprints. How else did they get here? <laughs> wow, so we have some really good Halloween stories for you tonight. Yes, yes. Keep listening in for more dinner, drinks, and death. We'll see y'all next time. Until next time.